Well, if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 12. We've been in a series as a church for some time now looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. Our desire in this series is that we would meet Jesus, we would learn from Jesus, and that in doing those two first steps, we would begin to trust and believe in Jesus in even greater uh, focus and faithfulness. Now we come to John chapter 12, and John chapter 12 is, if you will, kind of the pivot point of the entire gospel. For the first 11 chapters, John has dedicated those 11 chapters to the last three and a half years of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. But as chapter 12 opens up, especially with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, John begins to slow down his narrative. It's as if he knows that the culmination of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is at hand. And so John begins to slow things down. Over the next 10 chapters, we will not span years, we will not span months, we won't even span weeks, we'll span days. And then in the final chapter, we'll see Jesus' 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. And so everything that John speaks of in the days to come, not that the other things weren't important, but it sure seems that John wants us to focus in with even greater intensity on what he writes in these last chapters of his gospel. And so we find Jesus again in Jerusalem. It's not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. In fact, this is probably the fourth or fifth time that John records that Jesus has come. Now, he's come for a festival again. It's not the first festival that John records that Jesus is a part of. But this is the Passover festival. This is the creme de la creme, the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar and the Jewish celebrations. This is the celebration of God in the time of the Egyptian captivity where God came through big for his people and caused them and allowed them to experience the passing over of his judgment because of the sacrifice of a lamb. And so every year in the springtime, the people of God would dedicate a time and a season to this celebration. Now this would cause tons of people to come to Jerusalem. In fact, most uh, scholars believe that over a half a million people attended that year that Jesus was there, Jerusalem. Josephus, the first century historian, said during the time of Passover, it was not uncommon for 250,000 lambs to be sacrificed during that celebration. The town was full, and word had gotten out that Jesus from Nazareth had come to town. And people wanted to see Jesus. There had been word that Jesus had healed a blind man. There was word now coming from Bethany that just days prior to the Passover that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after being in the tomb for four days. It was palpable the sense and the feeling that the crowd had as Jesus approached. But that's not just what was true in the first century. It's true for us today. There's something exciting about when a famous person comes to your town. There's something about it that gets you fired up. It's something rather exciting. People want to gather. They want to see the famous person. They want to hear from the famous person. They want to experience the famous person in their area code, in their village. They want even maybe the opportunity to touch and interact with that famous person. 
What was true in the first century is true for us in the 21st century. And let me illustrate this. Many of you know I'm from the town of Hinckley. And the town of Hinckley is a very small town. If you blink, you'll have driven right through it. But over a course of every 10 or 15 years, something famous happens in Hinckley. For those who don't know, Hinckley was the uh, place of the first Harlem Globetrotter basketball game in 1927. And every handful of years, the Globetrotters come back to our little gym, to our little town, for the hottest ticket in town, and we pack our gym, and we get to see in our little space, even though the Globetrotters have played in massive arenas, and by the way, for those that don't know, that's not me playing basketball. I know there was question, <laughs> but the Globetrotters come, and we pack our little gym to watch these incredible ambassadors of goodwill and great basketball fun. And, and what you hope for when you get the opportunity, it's the hottest ticket in town, you want to be the one that gets called on the court, and there's two of my youngest there when they were much smaller and way cuter, um, on the basketball court with one of the Globetrotters. There's something great when famous people come to your town. Well, Hinkley's not the only one. If you've been in the Fox Valley area for any amount of time, you would remember in 2005, George W. Bush came to Montgomery uh, giving a new initiative uh, at the uh, place of the Caterpillar plant. Tens of thousands of people came to hear the president and other dignitaries speak and get the opportunity to shake hands with a standing president. But George W. Bush wouldn't be the only one. If you're from Aurora and you're a little older than I am, you might have experienced a meeting Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon who gave speeches at the steps of Aurora's City Hall. They would announce that one of the best places to live, can you believe this, was to live in Aurora and Fox Valley. That's what Honest Ike said about things. But then again, that's not the only time. In fact, when big names come to town, we here in the Fox Valley area like to throw parades, and that's exactly what we did in 1903 when Teddy Roosevelt, the president at the time, came to Aurora. That picture is a parade that took place on Downer Street in 1903. People came, and historians, as you read about his visit, uh, upwards to hundreds of thousands of people came to see Teddy Roosevelt in the town of Aurora. But the biggest, largest crowd in the Fox Valley area to ever welcome uh, an individual of, of great famousness, if you will, was in 1961 when uh, President John F. Kennedy came to Batavia. He would be a part of a parade that would take place on Route 31, and they number uh, the number of people in the hundreds of thousands, and they've got video here to show you as people uh, were rejuvenated by this young and, and uh, vibrant new president who came to our area to speak about a new America. Listen, friends, there is something awesome when a famous person comes to your town. Well, I want you to know today our text is greater than a president. It's greater than any basketball players. Jesus came to Jerusalem. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem, and when famous people come to your town, you've got a decision to make. Are you for them or are you against them? Are you with them 
or are you not? And what we're going to see this morning is that question isn't so easily answered with a simple yes or no. We've got to ask and develop some thoughts and and we've got to work through some of our own motives and actions to come up with the answer. You see, Jesus came to Jerusalem. And we have to ask the question, will he find us faithful? Now, I want you to know in this text, as we're going to work through it, and I've got two points that I want to work through this morning, that I'm not going to talk much about Jesus. And I don't think John has any intention of making the focus of this particular passage about Jesus. What he's focused in on, because Jesus is only mentioned twice in the text, but you know what's mentioned more in the text? The crowd. There's a focus on the crowd. Now, every one of the gospel writers write about this event. It's an important event. And yes, in other places in the gospels, the crowd isn't the focus. But there's a contrast between the crowd in this uh, triumphal entry Sunday, Palm Sunday, and the isolated individual of Mary in our passage prior. Mary shows undying devotion to her Savior, no matter what it means to her within the community, no matter what it meant to her in cost. And Jeremy did a phenomenal job last week in walking us through that text. But then we have contrasted this crowd that seemingly is comfortable with just kind of being there. Now, here's the problem. The problem with the crowd is this, and we see this in all of the Gospels. As you progress from Sunday, there is about a hundred hours between what transpires in our text and the events surrounding Easter. So you have 100 hours before the arrest of Jesus, before the trial of Jesus, before the abusing and beating of Jesus, before uh, the long road uh, to Calvary to him being hung on a cross, to him being put to death, a hundred hours between this crowd and all of those events. And the question we have to ask is, where was Sunday's crowd? Where was Sunday's crowd when Jesus needed a witness to speak on his behalf? Where was Sunday's crowd when Jesus was arrested? Where was Sunday's crowd when Jesus walked solitarily to Calvary? Where was Jesus? Where was this crowd when Jesus was hung on the cross? Surely they could have come and at least been with his mother and his closest followers. Where was this crowd that could have paid homage and reverence to Jesus for the life he lived? Where were all the people who had gotten miracles? Where were all the people whose demons had left them? Where were all the people? You see, listen folks, being in the crowd isn't good enough. And so today I want to talk about what I want to call casual spirituality and committed spirituality. And I think we need to do some real evaluating this morning on which one we're a part of. And so this morning when Jesus comes to town, it begs the question, is he going to find in you, in me, casual spirituality? Write that down. This casual spirituality is something that we need to work through. Now, a couple of things I want you to know about this casual spirituality, because right away your answer is, no, of course not. I'm here at church. You're preaching to the choir. 
I'm here. I was here last week. I'll be here next week. I'm not casual, but I want you to notice a couple things about this casual spirituality. Write these things down. Number one, casual spirituality is energetic. There's great passion that the gospel writers say surrounding Palm Sunday. It's an energetic, it's an electric crowd. Number two, it is an enlightened crowd. They knew Jesus was coming. They didn't just, they just weren't there by happenstance. They had made the journey to wherever this crowd was gathering, wherever this parade was going to take place. They were there because of Jesus. Notice in the text, a large crowd had come to the feast. They had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they did something. So they're enlightened. They're not only enlightened that they're there because of Jesus, they're enlightened that Jesus is doing things that seemingly make him out to be the Messiah. So they speak out, and they announce, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You can be enlightened and still be casual. You can be energetic and still be casual. Notice, this crowd had experienced the moving of God. As you go through the text, you will see this crowd, verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. And so this crowd had seen Jesus do miracles. They were there. They had seen that what Jesus said about himself was true through his acts or works of signs and wonders. They were energetic, they were enlightened, they were experienced, and listen, they were about exalting Jesus. They were there, and none of them say, you know what, I don't want to say anything nice about Jesus. They said, blessed, favor is upon Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord, and they say even that Jesus should be the King of Israel. So here is this pro-Jesus crowd who's energetic, enlightened, have experienced the moving of God, and are exalting Jesus. But the problem is, this spiritual casualness doesn't have staying power. Within a hundred hours, a matter of days, this group will become a part of the mob that says, crucify him, crucify him. This crowd has the opportunity, after just a hundred hours prior, to getting Jesus released by saying, listen, take Barabbas, Pontius Pilate, we'll take Jesus. But they don't. Which tells us this, my friends, you don't want to be a part of the crowd. You don't want to be part of the crowd. As parents, we tell our children this, don't fall for the pressure of the crowd. There's nothing good when a group of people gather together and try to talk you into something, and yet many people today, in churches today, and sadly maybe even some in this place today, are completely content with casually hanging around in a crowd. 
So let's talk about it. Let's define what it is I'm indebted to. Uh, the Barna Group, who did a study on the spiritual casualness of the church in America, and they said this about casual spirituality. Casual spirituality is defined by the desire to please God, family, and other people while extracting as much enjoyment and comfort from the world as possible. They call these people casuals. For casuals, success is balancing everything just right so that they're able to maximize their opportunities and joys in life without undermining their perceived relationship with God and others. It's a life in moderation. It allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith. This type of spirituality is a low-risk, predictable proposition, providing a faith perspective that is not demanding. Being spiritually casual can be all things that they esteem, a nice human being, a family person, religious, an exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social positions or even lose much sleep over their private choices as long as they mean well and generally do their best. From their perspective, their brand of faith practice is genuine, realistic, and practical. To them, casual spirituality is the best of all worlds. It encourages them to be a better person than they would have been if they were irreligious, yet it is not a faith into which they feel compelled to heavily invest themselves. Does that describe you this morning? You're like, well, I'm not sure. Tell me more. Let me ask you three diagnostic questions of whether or not we and I'm including myself in this, are spiritually casual. The first question that we need to ask is, am I more comfortable in crowds? Am I more comfortable in crowds? No, you're like, wait a minute. Are you asking about my personality? Because I'm extroverted, I love crowds. Or you're saying I'm introverted, I hate crowds, I don't even want to be here, but I am. That's not what I'm talking about. John mentions the crowd three times in this short passage, and he's not talking about their personality. He's asking about their practice of spirituality or their practice of faith, and it begs this question. Ask yourself this. Do I practice my faith, my spirituality, only when others are doing it with me? Do I practice my faith, my spirituality, only when others are doing it with me? So let's, let's stop here for a moment. This is what I'm asking. Was the last time that you worshiped and prayed and thought about and meditated upon God and his word the last time maybe you served, the last time you talked about your faith, was the last time for all of it, the last time you opened God's word, was the last time you did it, the last time you were with us in this room? If so, and don't look anywhere else, I'm asking you, if so, then I want you to know something, brother or sister, with all love and sincerity, you're probably way more casual than you want to give credence to. And let's face it, to do faith in a crowd is easy. It's way easier to do it here. Now, here's a couple reasons. Number one, it's exciting to be a part of the crowd. Let's face it. You come in, there's an energy here. 
That energy cannot uh, be substituted from here into your bedroom or into your uh, den or wherever you might do some quiet time or even in your car. The energy of a room full of people is much different than you being by yourself. There's an excitement. But notice a part of the crowd, it's anonymous. Notice that no names are listed of the crowd. We don't know who was there. We don't know who wasn't there. It's easy to get in and get out in this Palm Sunday crowd. It's low cost. So this anonymousness and this low cost, the idea is that there's little to no commitment. Once the parade's done, they could go home to their activities and do their things. And so it was short-lived. Now this is in direct contrast to Mary, who Mary, there was a name. It says Mary broke the alabaster jar and poured it over Jesus' feet and wiped her, his feet with her hair. It cost her a full year's wages. This was a devotion that was costly. Do you see what committed Christianity in Mary is compared to the casual Christianity of the crowd? Now notice, there were no threats to the lives of the people. That is, is that there was nothing that they had to worry about. So Jesus gets arrested. What does it mean to them? They went on with their day. Nobody was questioned from the crowd. Nobody was asked about their allegiance to Jesus from the crowd. Not a single person in the crowd has to speak on Jesus' behalf or tell anybody else about Jesus after they're at the parade. Does that describe you? Do you find comfort in doing your spiritual activity within the comforts of the crowd? Have you ever had been asked about your faith and what you do as you talk about the faith of others? Well, I'm a part of a great church. You know, the worship team, they do an awesome job. And our kids' ministry, man, we've got kids just filling the hallways. And, and our teachers, we hear, are uh, second to none. And, and our student ministry's growing. When teenagers don't want to come to Jesus, come to church, we're, we're growing. And did you hear we had an uh, a outreach at Caneland with tons of kids coming to it? And God's doing great things through them. And, 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 our, and our lead pastor, he's okay. No, he preaches the word, and it's the meat of it. And, and, and are you listening to yourself talk? I wanted to know about your faith, and you told me about everybody else's faith. I want to know what God's doing in your life. You're telling me about what God's doing in everyone else's lives. For young people here, don't talk about your mom and dad's faithfulness. Talk about your faithfulness. Husbands, don't talk about your wife's faithfulness. Talk about your faithfulness. You see, it's easy to be in the crowd. There's insulation within the crowd. But the crowd, there's no requirements. With the crowd, there's no restrictions. And there's ability to take and leave Christ whenever it's appropriate or expedient. Does that describe you? Does it describe me? Second question. Not only is it the crowd, but... Am I hopeful for change in temporal circumstances? Let's be fair. They showed up. They wanted to see Jesus. There was some level of allegiance to Jesus. Let's face it. Jesus was saying things that the Romans may not have liked. So let's be honest that you do kind of, you know, corner yourself into this by merely showing up. And they do that. They show up because Jesus is coming. But why have they shown up? 
And why are they announcing Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It says Jesus finds a colt of a young donkey and he sits on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Why does this group love Jesus so much? Is it because Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost? The answer is no. Is it because for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life? The answer is no. They are not here, the crowd isn't, to receive the spiritual blessings and benefits that come from a Savior who saves people from their sins. So why'd they come? You need to underline in your Bible, if you do that, what the people do. Verse 13, so they took, underline this, branches of palm trees. Really important. You're like, yes, I love it. I love Palm Sunday. The kids, they start waving the branches. This is so great. You won't after I'm done, okay? So, What's with the palm branches? The palm branches declare their agenda. I love what D.A. Carson says. He can say it way better than I can. He says this. John is the only gospel to mention the palm branches that we now associate with Palm Sunday. Two centuries before Christ, Judas and Simon Maccabeus had driven the Syrian forces out of Israel. Remember those guys? Remember Antiochus Epiphanes? Remember Hanukkah? Jesus celebrated Hanukkah because uh, they had vanquished their foes. That's who we're talking about, 200 years before Christ. Their victory was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches, which also had a prominence at an earlier rededication of the temple. We turn the page and we see this. Thus, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism and a victory over their enemies. The crowd was hopeful that Jesus was the messianic liberator who would free them from Rome's domination. So why is the crowd there? Because Jesus is running for president. And just like we saw a crowd assembled because this famous man is announcing his presidential campaign. And who cannot vote for Jesus? Jesus has a great food stamps program. You take a couple loaves and fishes and you give everybody food. Jesus' health care, talk about Medicare for all Jesus says, you come blind, you come lame, you come with all kinds of issues and struggles, I'll address it. Talk about free health care, I will make you whole again. And then Jesus is the revolutionary, he's fighting against the establishment when he says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Put that on a hat. This is the guy. He's it. He's our candidate. He's the guy who once and for all is going to address the Roman problem. No more as the people of God are we going to be oppressed. This Jesus is the new Moses. He's the Messiah. He's the one. Here's the problem. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, not to set up his earthly kingdom and to vanquish some earthly opponent. Jesus came to bring new life to all who will believe in him. 
And, and, it, and it begs the question for us this morning, something we have to be so very careful of, and something that our types of churches need to be so careful of in these days, and that is the merging of Jesus and politics. Oh, church, be careful. Does it mean we can't be political? No, we can be political. But don't listen to me very carefully. Jesus is not the answer to the White House. He's the answer to our sinful hearts. Okay? And we've got to recognize that. But, but it goes bigger than that. That was their problem. It's some of our problem today. But some of us are following Jesus for what Jesus will get us. He's the genie in the bottle. He's Santa Claus. So I better be right. I better be good. I better live as he says because I I feel like if I don't, he may make my life miserable. I really don't love him. I really don't need him in my life except for that emergency that comes. And so I'll make sure my life is just good enough so I don't have to worry about that. These people saw Jesus as a means to an end. And we have to be really, really careful of that. Are you following Jesus because of what he will get you according to your agenda? Are you looking at Jesus and saying, not the Father's will in heaven, but my will, Jesus, will be done? And some of us, whether we want to hear it or not, are living there. And Jesus is this footnote on the page of everything that's written about us. Are we being too casual. Finally, we see, am I clueless to the plans of Christ? Casual spirituality would say yes. Notice verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and he had, and had been done to him. So John writes this about 50 years after these events. And I love the honesty of John because he says, within the crowd are the disciples and we didn't get it. And let's face it, the disciples altogether too casual. They're too worried about who's going to be first in the kingdom. They're too worried about making sure we don't minister to the Samaritans. They're too worried about all these earthly things. Now they're more vested than the crowd was, but they still don't get it. They don't get it when Jesus dies on the cross, remember? They think it's over. It's game over. It's done. Now what are we going to do? Let's just go home and die. Let's move on. And part of our casualness, if you really want to know, is to ask the question, how in tune am I with the plans of Christ? Do I know what the Word of God says about Christ and what He's doing in the world? But even more importantly, do I know what the Word of God says about what Christ wants to do in me? Do I know, am I in tune with what it means to follow Christ? Am I in tune with what it means to deny myself and to take up my cross daily? Do I understand how that intersects with my checkbook and intersects with my uh, calendar and intersects with my priorities? Do I understand how God's Word has bearing on my life? Far too many of us are casual and Jesus simply is a Sunday morning item. And he never intersects with any of our decisions, never intersects with any of our dreams. He never is involved in any of our thinking except for I'll go to church, I'll sing some songs about him, Pastor Tim will talk altogether too long about him, and hopefully before he's uh, gone too long we can go and get some lunch. 
and I've done my duty, I'm way better than my neighbor, and I'm telling you, you're smack dab in the middle of the crowd and you don't want to be there. Three ways to diagnose if you are taking a casual approach to Christ. Are any of them true of you? I've had to wrestle with them and I'm sad to say there's way more casualness in your pastor's life than should be and should be and as a result of that I stand convicted before these words even hit your ears. So what do we do? We need to be spiritually committed. I'll move quickly through these, but again I turn to Barna. He's helpful in this. What does it mean to be spiritually committed? The spiritually committed are defined by their faith. The worldview is built around their core spiritual beliefs and resulting values. Their success is defined by their obedience to God as demonstrated by consistently serving Christ, carrying out his commands and principles. This is an important statement. It uses corporate times of celebration as a catalyst for deeper personal times of devotion. What it means is it's okay to be in the crowd if it drives you then to your knees and to the Word in your private gatherings with the Lord. And it's able to stand the test of time, no matter the opposition or struggle. Which one better defines you this morning? Can I tell you this definition is not found in any particular group within the crowd? And so we have to look to the greater uh, narrative of Scripture to see what God does in the work of some of these members within the crowd, namely the disciples who get on fire for the Lord and who do great things for the Lord. And so I don't want you to think that you come in here and the pastor slaps you around a little bit and you're like, well, the, the, the ship sailed. I can't, I can't fix it. Yes, you can. Today is the day by the grace of God that you can say, I'm done being casual and I'm going to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And when I fail, I'm going to run to Jesus and get my forgiveness so I can continue in fellowship with him. That's why I'm so glad today we center ourselves around the table here in a couple of moments to seek that forgiveness and to do that business with our God. So how do we know that we're growing in spiritual commitment? Three things and we'll close. Number one, am I living in fear or am I living in faith? Am I living in fear or am I living in faith? Zechariah is quoted here and John says, again, we didn't see it at first, but now I see it. Verse 15, he says, this is written in the Scriptures, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Did you know that those words, fear not, are a derivative of those words as the greatest, most um, used commands in all of Scripture? A couple hundred different times it says, fear not, do not be anxious, do not worry, do not fret, do not dread, or some derivative of it. Hundreds of times in the scriptures, over and over again. And I don't want to beat that over your head like some domineering individual, because notice it says, fear not, O daughter of Zion. Now, I, I don't have daughters, but I see how the men around me treat their daughters way different than we treat our sons, by the way. Okay, and the grace and the mercy and the love. The father says that, fear not, oh my daughter. Why? Why don't we have to fear? Why don't we have to dread? Why can we live by faith? Because of the promise that your king is coming. Now, 
That statement isn't altogether true because our king has come. He's finished the work that he said he was going to do. Now all we're waiting for is the next parade, right? We're just in a holding pattern, waiting for Jesus to come to town. And we want to be ready. That's why Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes to earth, will he find faith? Not fear, faith. And so if you want to know where you're at, how are you doing in that vacillating between fear and faith? What, what fear says is, I'm on my own. What faith says is, I have a mighty God who's on my side. Now, I don't want you to think that because we're faithful individuals or committed, there will be no issue. Remember this, faith in Christ doesn't mean an absence of troubles, but a presence of a mighty God. It's not the absence of troubles, but the presence of a mighty God. Are you living in greater fear or faith? Spiritually committed people are going to grow in their faith, even as difficult as that may be in the days we live in. Number two, am I declaring what Christ has done? Am I declaring what Christ has done? Verse 17, we get the, uh, this group of people, the crowd that had been with, so it's a subset of the larger crowd that had been with Jesus, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Now, again, the crowd doesn't do everything bad. They do some good things. But the things they need to do is they need to bear witness. Now, here's the problem with the crowd. They bear witness when they're in the majority. But they're unwilling to bear witness in the minority. You want to know if you're in the crowd? How vocal are you when everybody agrees with you? And how quiet are you when nobody agrees with you? Then you'll know. A spiritually committed individual says, I don't care who I'm talking to. Jesus is Lord. And if that means I'm going to lose popularity, so be it. If that means I'm going to lose my job, so be it. If that means I'm going to lose my friends, so be it. If that means I'm going to lose standing within the, uh, the community I live in, then so be it. Jesus is my King. Jesus is my Lord. And it doesn't matter. And here's the great picture that we'll see in some weeks to come. When Peter is asked when he's in the minority, it's way different than when he's in the majority. See, being in the crowd enables us to boast about Jesus, but being a committed follower of Jesus says, listen to me, in the good, the bad, and ugly of life, one thing remains true. Jesus is my king, and I'll bear witness to it. Number three, am I fighting or following him? Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisee said, man, we fight this guy and all it does is it gives him more clout with the people. It ain't working. And can I just tell you, if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, then you're going to see less fighting and more following. Now, I'm not saying that you're a Pharisee, that you're hell-bent on getting rid of Jesus. But can I tell you, in my desire to commit to following Jesus, I'm amazed at how often Jesus says, go this way, and I go that way. How often Jesus says, I want you to do this, and I say, no, I want to do that. 
Listen, your casualness is getting the best of you if you're saying no to Jesus way more than you're saying yes to Jesus. And again, it's not my job to judge that in you. It's not the person sitting next to you to judge that in you. Only I can judge that of myself and only you can judge that in yourself. Are you fighting saying no to Jesus like the Pharisees did or are you following him? The triumphal entry. The triumphal entry where people loved to be a part of the crowd and announce that Jesus was all of these great things. But in a matter of hours, they couldn't be found. Can that be said of you this morning? You love to be here. You love to experience what Jesus is doing here. You you love the uh, excitement that comes in being here. But when you're by yourself, or you're alone in a group of people that are antagonistic to Jesus, are you rendered mute? Or even worse, do you just find yourself going with that crowd? 